<laughs> Even churches throwing shade as the Super Bowl is around. However, I just want to point out here at Ridgepoint Church, on the back row, we have the Patriot fans and the Eagle fans sitting right next to each other, worshiping together, and they're not throwing fists. So listen, <laughs> that's the last we're going to mention about football this morning. The really cool thing is, is, is that we kind of have fun with this. We kind of call it Super Bowl Sunday. We're collecting canned food items for the mission. The big winners are the mission. Uh, at the very end of this service, we're going to kind of figure out the weight of both of the cases back in the back, figure out which team was more passionate. Uh, simply by looking at it, it seems like one is a little bit higher than, than the other, but there's a rumor that Tom Brady's back there deflating the cans of the Eagles. So I'm not sure if that's true or not, but, but we'll find out later on this service. Listen, thank you for helping us out. Uh, we have a great relationship with the mission here in Winter Haven. All the canned food items are going directly towards the mission uh, this week. They're really excited. I shared with them what we wanted to do, and they're really excited about it. So thank you for having fun with that, um, and a really cool thing to be a part of. Uh, how's everybody doing this morning? Good, man, I'm glad that you're here. Turn to the person next to you, give them a fist bump, and say, I'm super glad that you're here this morning. This is Super Bowl weekend, and, and we're super glad. Look, the Eagles and Patriot fans are hugging. That's awesome. I appreciate that. Oh, man. Uh, listen, I'm really excited. We're kicking off a brand new series this morning. Uh, it's all about the book, or really the postcard of Philemon. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, and it's a series we're calling Runaway Grace. When I was probably about 10 years old, I had the privilege, I was the older sibling of, I had one younger brother. He was two years younger than I was. And we're probably the stereotypical, prototypical older sibling and younger sibling. Uh, just by show of hands, how many of you here, you have a sibling and you're the older sibling? All right, cool. How many of you have a sibling and you're the younger sibling? How many of you were the middle and you've forgotten about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like you know, you know what that's like, right? Anyway, uh, so, so I was the older of two brothers, we only, there's just two of us. We had a really close relationship, but we were only two years apart. But in those two years, our personalities were vastly different. Again, I was probably a prototypical older brother and that I wanted to kind of follow rules and uh, kind of my parents said something, I want to do it. And, and my brother was, if I was a rule follower, my brother was the rule bender on a good day. <laughs> like on, on a bad day, he's a rule breaker. And, and so, but, but parenting, parents, I think, as, as we kind of grow, we kind of parent different. We don't mean to, it's not our intent. But a lot of times with the older children, we're a little bit more protective and we have more rules. And if they break those rules, we tend to be a little bit stricter about it. And then the younger one gets away with some stuff. So even though my brother did a lot more stuff to probably get in trouble, it seemed like I always took the brunt of the punishment. And if my brother was ever punished, and he would admit this to this day, if my, other, if my brother was ever punished, he would rebel against the punishment. And I remember my brother was about eight years old at this point. I was 10, and, and I was kind of, I want everything to be just right and, and everything. And, and, and my brother gets in trouble for doing something. It was really pretty simple, but, but bad. He shouldn't have done it. And my parents grounded him. It wasn't a severe grounding. I don't even remember exactly what happened. But I know my brother was like grounded or something. And my brother said, no, I'm not going to be grounded. And, and like he was forceful in this. My mom's like, no, you're grounded. Start to take things away. And at eight years old, he turns to my mom. He says, okay, then I'm going to run away. And my mom laughed, and she's like, well, where are you going to run to? And she starts to, and, and my brother's like, like my parents are kind of, they know he's not really going to run away, and they knew everything was safe. So they started, okay, what are you going to do? And that only made my brother more resolved and matter. He's like, okay, if you're going to laugh at me, and he goes to his room, and he starts packing a bag of things he's going to take with him. And I'm kind of watching this, not so sure as my parents are, that my brother's really not going to run away. So I'm kind of the, the, the brother wants to make sure everything's just right. So I go running back, and I'm like, Eric, no, you don't want to run away. Man, you want to stay here, and where are you going to go? And, and my parents are just kind of, okay, let's see what happens. So we go walking outside, and 
My brother starts to walk down the road. Now, we lived in St. Pete. It was a pretty big block. There's a bunch of homes, uh, probably about a third of a mile around the block, maybe a little bit longer. And so I go walking down the end of our driveway, and I see my brother starting to walk away, carrying his bag behind him, just like the, you know, like one of those things you see in Peanuts or something. You see the kid walking away with his bag behind him, and I'm, I'm watching this, and I'm really freaked out at this point. And so I watch him. He gets about three houses down, and I chase after him. And I kind of watch him. I try to talk him out. He's like, no, I'm leaving. And he walks down to the end of the block, and I run down to the end of the block, and I peek around the block to see where he's at. My brother gets about a quarter of the way around the block and realizes he has absolutely no place to go. <laughs> he made it a whole quarter way around the block, and he says, okay, I'm coming back. But I'm not happy about it. And he made his way back, and, and I think that happened twice before he finally figured out that's not the best option for me. Uh, and he never really did anything like that again. But, but the thing is, most of us have found ourselves in a position where we want to run away from something. Maybe it's not our, our parents or our home life, but maybe it's just... Man, there's something messy about my life. There's some sort of drama that was there that, that I, didn't, I didn't see coming. I didn't really start it. Something happened, and, and there's this, this mess, and, and I don't want to be about that mess. And so we find ourselves running away from it. Now, I want to be careful when we kind of set, set this out because we're kind of setting ourselves up for this bigger picture of the series. And I'm say, there's certain things the Bible says we should flee from without a doubt. But I'm saying when there's, when there's a mess that either we've started ourselves or we've contributed to the problem. And then we just want to put that aside and say, I'm going to pretend that doesn't exist. I'm going to go on with my life and I'm never going to deal with that. That also is very, very unhealthy. We say this often from the stage that often God will turn our messes into our message. That God wants to do that. That each one of us, we have stuff in our life that, that is messed up that we don't like. And God turns that mess into a message. But if we never deal with it, it can never become our message. And we think, I don't like this situation. What happened here wasn't my fault. It's really messy. I'm going to flee as far away from it as I can, and I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist, or, or this situation is really sticky. The more I get kind of caught up in it, the more I kind of get plagued by it. And, and so our problem is we want to flee from it, but fleeing from a mess doesn't make our mess go away. I want us to get that, that fleeing from our mess doesn't make our mess go away. I wish it did. I wish we could, if we have issues at work, and we know, like, like maybe something happened at work, and, and it was somebody else's fault. It was the other employee's fault. It was my boss's fault. And they did something that was really, really wrong. But I know I have kind of a, a, a sharp mouth. And I said something in that situation that I shouldn't have said. But they were really wrong. They were 98% wrong. And I was 2% wrong. But because they were really wrong, I can go do whatever I want. I can flee from it. And it's not my fault because they started it. Or there's some family situation and a crazy uncle does something he shouldn't do and, and we get in and we kind of jump in the situation and we say stuff we shouldn't say, we're disrespectful and we flee that situation and we think, well, I'm just going to not deal with that. I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist because it really wasn't my problem in the first place. I get that. And I get why if we're giving advice to people who are in that situation and say you're 98% right. You're 2% wrong, but they're really wrong, so just pretend they don't exist. I understand why we'd give that advice. But we're going to deal with a letter today that Paul writes. Paul is an apostle, of, uh, a follower of Jesus. He had, he had been, earlier on in his life, he kind of had persecuted the church, didn't like Jesus, becomes his church planner, says, I want to go now, and I want to teach people the saving grace of Jesus. I want to teach them how to deal with all the stuff they have going on in their life. 
And he writes this letter, and kind of how the New Testament is laid out, if we read the New Testament beginning in the very first book of the New Testament, it's the Gospel of Matthew, and the first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the stories of the life of Christ, the first 30 years after Jesus is born. Uh, So from about 4 B.C. to about 30 A.D. The next book is the book of Acts, which covers about the next 30 years. Well, during the book of Acts, it's the history of the early church. During the book of Acts, there's stuff that's taking place. And one of the things that happens is Paul's converted to Jesus, and he starts to plant church. So in that same time period, he's going from church to church, planting churches. And then when he'd get to a new church, he'd often write back to the old church and say, hey, I heard something that was going on. Now, most of Paul, what Paul writes, they're all in order from that point on. So from the book of Acts, so beginning in the book of Romans to the book of Philemon, which we'll look at today, it's all what Paul wrote. Now, they're not in chronological order. They're in order from the longest of his letters to the shortest, Romans being the longest, and Philemon is only 335 words long. In fact, when I was in college, my professor referred to it as Paul's postcard, and, and it literally is written from Paul to an individual named Philemon. And when, when we were in college, one of my friends put him to the test and actually wrote out the whole book of Philemon on a postcard and mailed it to that professor. That's how short it is. So it's this short letter that's, that's written, and yet in it he deals with some of the most controversial topics in his own manner. And today we're just going to begin a three-week series. Today we're going to look at the foundation of this. We're not going to get into a lot of the heavier topics. That comes later. But in 25 verses, in only 25 verses, Paul deals with a really heavy topic, a topic that amazingly enough is something we're still talking about today, and there's still a lot of, it's a hot-button issue. People are still very passionate and and very uh, emotional about this topic. And so even though today, mostly what we're doing is laying a foundation for the subsequent weeks of the series. In three weeks, we'll go all the way through the book of Philemon. And in three weeks of looking at this, we're going to deal with some heavier topics in the coming weeks. But today I want to encourage us because we're also going to deal, because really what we're going to see and we're going to encounter today is Paul deals with a controversial topic that's taking place. And he doesn't really address it, not directly at least. And we're going to talk about why that is. And by the end, I think it's going to be a challenge to us living in modern day United States to say, how does something like this written 2,000 years ago, how does that affect us in our relationships and in dealing with social justice type issues today? Because for most of us, We can get behind social justice issues. We can get behind, man, last week at Status, we got a chance to get up on stage and share. Here's some really cool things that are going on. We're partnering with Habitat for Humanity this year. We're going to Honduras to build homes. Like, we get excited about those social justice issues, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Paul says way bigger than that is the hard issue that we have to deal with. With that being said, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Philemon. If you do have them, I'd encourage you to take your little bookmark and leave it there because for the next three weeks, we're going to be there. I'd also encourage you for the next couple of weeks, read it through. You can read this probably through in about five minutes. Uh, Kind of just focus on and get to know this book. I love this. Even in a short amount of time, Paul covers a lot of that. With that being said, we're going to jump right in for the first three verses of Philemon this morning to start off. It's a greeting he's given from Paul to this person named Philemon. He says this. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldiers, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins the letter with a standard greeting. If you look at anything Paul wrote, that Paul writes, it's very similar to that. He begins with a greeting that is first saying who wrote the letter. Now, I asked this in the first service, 
And I was really surprised by this. I know we live in this day and age of like instant communication. I can send a text message or I can send an email. People can get it instantly. But there's still something about getting a handwritten letter. Does anybody here in second service, do you still handwrite letters? We had, I was surprised, there were quite a few in the first service. Man, the second, uh, when we get that, that handwritten letter, it's just something personal. It's something different. In this day and age of instant communication, it's convenient. Our communication has been a communication of convenience. Again, I can send a text message, and my friend, as soon as they are free, they can get the text message and respond right away. But when I go out to the mail and I get a letter that's hand-addressed, and then I go and I open it up and I see that someone took the time to actually handwrite a letter, there's just something very intentional about that. There's, very, there's, there's something very like thoughtful about that. Like it wasn't just, I didn't just sit down at my computer and type something out real quick, but, but I sat down and it took me some time to handwrite this letter as legibly as I can. Some of us got away from writing letters because our handwriting stinks. But, but for people who have the nice handwriting, you get the letter and it just feels way more personal. However, our standard greeting is to write, dear so-and-so, or some sort of affectionate greeting at the beginning, and then at the very end of the letter, signing our name with much gratitude or or whatever it is, whatever our standard issue thing is that we sign, we do that at the end, or maybe there's a personal greeting we give at the end. Paul does that at the beginning. And in doing that, we're going to begin by looking at who are the three main characters of this letter. For us to get the big picture of what this is all about, the three main characters of this letter. It begins, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Now, Timothy is, is mentioned in this because Paul is writing this letter to give a huge ask. He's, he's about to ask something that is way beyond what anybody thinks he'd be able to ask. So he begins by saying, hey, by the way, Philemon, as I'm writing this, Timothy's here. Timothy's by my side. Timothy has my back. I'm just letting you know he's, he's on my side about this. But he begins by saying, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul was this disciple who uh, early on in his life, he had fought against the church. He actually is, is party to those who are persecuting, even killing Christians. Jesus miraculously saves him, changes him, and he becomes one of the most passionate believers and one of the biggest church planners and missionaries the world's ever seen. And so he's going out, he's like, hey, listen, Jesus changed my life, this is incredible, and I want everybody else to know about this. I want everyone else to know about the grace and knowledge of who Jesus is. And he's going out and doing that, and as he's doing that, Especially in the first century uh, Roman culture, there are a bunch of people that didn't want that to happen. And so there are a lot of them that are fighting against him and just as they persecuted Jesus. And some people we've looked at the last couple of weeks, like Peter and the disciples, they come after Paul and eventually, often, Paul is arrested. So when Paul says, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, he's not just saying a prisoner and that I'm in bonds because I love him so much. He's actually writing, saying that I am literally a prisoner in chains right now as I write this. Now, what often happened with Paul was he would use the person because he was in chains. He'd use someone as kind of a secretary and a menuensis who would, he'd dictate the letter and they'd write it for him. But Paul's writing this letter and he says, listen, as I write this, I'm writing, most experts believe by this point Paul's in, in prison in the city of Rome in Italy. Now, that's not really important except for this. Rome is about 1,200 miles from the city of everybody else that's in this. The home city for Philemon, Onesimus, who we'll get to in a second, is is a city called Colossae, which is the city, if we read Colossians, it's written to the church in Colossae. They're about 1,200 miles away from each other, Rome and Colossae. And it wasn't simple travel. Some of it was by land, some of it was by sea. 
But Paul's about 1,200 miles away, and he writes this letter to a particular person. So Paul is writing this from prison, and he's saying, listen, as I write from prison in Rome, I want to address it to, and he writes it to really three people, but really, in, in essence, to one person. He says, I write it to Philemon. Beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church is meeting in your house. Now, most experts look at that and say, he's writing to Philemon, who's the husband. Aphia is the, the wife, and Archippus would be the son. So he's writing it to one family unit, basically. But as he writes this, there's a couple of things we can read from that. Uh, first of all, their culture would have been, especially because they're not a port city, their culture would have been very, very poor. They wouldn't have had a lot of money. And so in, in this area in particular, most people didn't own homes. If you were a family, you'd often own a room. You'd be in a room with a bunch, you'd have a bunch of other rooms in the house, and your family owned one particular room. But Philemon is wealthy enough that not only does he own a room, he owns a whole house. And he's wealthy enough that his house is large enough that when Paul says that I'm writing this to Philemon and Aphia and Archippus and the whole church that's in your house. So it isn't just him, it's the whole church that is meeting in the house. So here's what happened. We know from what we read later on, Paul's going out, he's teaching about Jesus. Philemon, because of Paul's going out and teaching about Jesus, Philemon becomes a believer. They go and plant a church in Colossae, and one of the house churches that they meet at is in Philemon's home. So this person that he's writing to is deeply important to Paul. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. So we have the first two main characters are Paul, then you have Philemon, who was one to Christ under Paul and who started a church meeting in his house. But here's where things get problematic. Because as the culture was in their day, Philemon is also a slave owner. The third person we're going to read about is Onesimus, who is his slave, his runaway slave. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. That's coming in subsequent weeks. But he's a slave, and, and we look at that, and it's one of those issues today where people are battling, like, I know there's legacy, but this person did this, and it's not right, and we know it's not right, and how does that affect their legacy? And it's one of the things that's still out there in our culture today. And so we look at this and say, well, if, if Philemon is a slave owner, I know he was meeting in the church, but what does all that mean, and how does that work together with our faith? We have to understand first a little bit of the culture, because what was happening in Roman culture in that day was the city of Rome was expanding, and as they defeat other cities and other areas, they would collect those people and bring them back as slaves in their hometowns, and, and they'd use them. And, and sometimes the slaves were treated actually really well. There was this rising movement to say, this is wrong. We've been treating slaves wrong, and this is a, a wrong practice entirely. And so there was starting to be this conscious level of, we need to have a greater discussion about this even 2,000 years ago. We have to deal with this, and, and, and we can't just, at that point, they're saying we can't just free them because they don't have the means to live, and some of them were living better the way that it was, and so their culture at that point was wrestling with it. And so we meet Paul, who's this, this Christian leader. We meet Philemon, who's a leader within the church, but he's also an owner of slave, at least one, probably multiple slaves, and, and this whole letter is, how do you deal with that? Because a little bit of a spoiler alert, Onesimus has run away, and that is kind of the reason why Paul writes this letter. And at the end of the day, Paul says, by the way, Onesimus, I want you to go back home. I know what he's doing is wrong, but how you handled it was wrong as well. And we look at that and say, Paul, it seems like terrible advice. But Paul says, we want to deal with our mess. Because for you and I, our topics might not be this controversial. 
We have a tendency to shy away from our issues. Even if our issues aren't self-made, we say, hey, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going to move on and pretend it doesn't exist. And when we do that, it affects every subsequent relationship that we have. Every subsequent journey that we go into, we're carrying a baggage because we never dealt with that. So this letter is really a letter of discovering how do I deal with baggage? How? Because oftentimes we find ourselves running away from something that becomes the very thing that we have to run towards. So we read that and we read what is about to take place and we wonder, why was something more not said? And yet our challenge this morning is I think Paul's response to this is brilliant. Let's read a little bit further. We're going to read down to verse 7 and that's where we'll stop today. But it says this. Verse 4, I thank my God always. Paul's writing this directly to this leader in the church, Philemon. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, all the believers that are there. And I pray the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And then he says this, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He's writing this to a person who is a leader in the church, and he has some things that are questionable. But he writes this joyous expression of how every time I think of you, I thank God for you. I've heard so many good reports about how you're affecting the, the people in the church, how much you love them, how much you're caring for them. And he finishes it up by saying, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the believers have been refreshed through you. Now, I read all that, and I know what he's about to ask. I know he's about to give this huge, giant ask. And it seems like at first glance, he's buttering Philemon up for what he's about to ask. It would be like, maybe as a child, you did this. You walked up to your parents. He said, Mom, Dad, you know how much I love you. Or maybe as a parent, you heard your, your child come up to you. And they came up and said, Mom, Dad, you know I love you, right? And what are the next words out of our mouth? What do you want? It's not that I question whether or not you love me. I know that you do. But the fact you're coming up and showing that measure of affection, you come up to me and you say, Mom, Dad, you know I love you, right? And right away I'm asking this question, how much is this going to cost me? Like, like, what do you want from this? So Paul writes this, and, and he seems to be kind of using this, this flowery language, and Philemon, here's how much I think about you and pray for you and, and how much I'm encouraged by you. And it seems like it's kind of setting him up for what's about to come, unless you know the Apostle Paul. See, Paul wrote a lot of letters this way. He wrote letters like letter to the church at Philippi, and he says, man, every time I think of you, I pray for you, and I have so much joy when I think about you. You see, Whenever we get to a point where we're starting to do what we're supposed to do, which is multiply disciples, and we see people take those next steps, if we've ever been in a position where we led someone to Christ or we mentored them in their faith, and they start to take steps that are beyond anything we ever thought or imagined, we say, man, I'm more proud of them than I am of anything I've ever done. Like, I'm excited about that. So Paul writes this expression. I have a chance as a former youth pastor to see students who are stepping up. They're on staff at churches, and they're leading, and they're leading worship and, and doing these things. And I'm like, man, when they do that, that's such a cool thing. And Paul writes and says, man, you're continuing the ministry. You're making the ministry even bigger. This movement that has been started is being filtered through you, and I rejoice at that. And so Paul writes this genuinely, saying, Philemon, I have great, great fond respect for you fond memories with you, 
And yet I'm about to ask you to do something that is, is going to be very bold. Now let me say that he's going to do this. And I think this letter is a great letter on how to deal with big issues of our day. But the one thing that Philemon doesn't do, and he's been criticized for this, by the way. But we have to understand, first of all, that when we read this, someone's writing this, Paul's writing this to Philemon. And as Paul writes, it isn't just Paul writing this. He's writing under inspiration of, of God who brought him these words. But sometimes Paul's been, being, been criticized that he didn't do more to address this topic. In fact, he mentions the role that Onesimus has, that he's a slave. He talks about that a little bit. But he never comes out outright and says, this institution is wrong. We have to deal with that. And some people have looked at Paul and they've been critical, saying, Paul, you could have done more. You could have said more. But there's two things that I want to encourage us as our takeaways as we leave this morning in dealing with really a sensitive topic, something that's, that culturally was, was really sensitive then and it's culturally still really sensitive now. We can all agree this is wrong. But how do you deal with that? And so Paul says this. Paul says, instead of dealing with the institution, because there's two things that Paul is going to communicate through what he writes in this. Number one, Paul's silence was leading towards a greater change. Paul's silence is leading towards a greater change. Paul doesn't come out outright and say any of this stuff. He knows it's wrong, but he also knows the church is a fledgling organization. Really, the church has only been around for 30 years, and they say, man, our primary focus right now, we haven't figured out even how to address social justice issues. We've not figured out how to do any of that stuff yet. Our primary focus is teaching people about Jesus and seeing him change people's hearts. See, Paul knew something that 2,000 years later, we kind of sometimes flip these two things. But Paul knew this. Right behavior follows right belief. That right actions follows right beliefs. We have a tendency to flip those two. In our culture, we find something about culture that we don't agree with and we want to attack that institution and say, well, it's not right that our country allows this, or it's not right that our country supports this. And we have a tendency to stand out on the street corners and trumpet our causes. And Paul says, if we trumpet Jesus, it's going to bring a more lasting change. He said, I can either address this topic institutionally, or I can address the topic theologically. And Paul says, I'm much more concerned with the person's heart. See, he knew if the church, as young as it was, if it started just to attack the different institutions, because there were people who were already on board saying, this is wrong, we have to deal with this. And there were riots, and there were people that were dying because of it. He says, if the church right away. Now, we're going to see Paul's not totally silent on the issue. That's not it at all. But he says, when it comes to this interpersonal relationship, I want to reach his heart, because I believe that if I can reach a person's heart, I can change his actions. Where if I try to deal with all the actions, I might never get to the heart. And so Paul says, when I deal with my friend, my brother, instead of me coming and attacking him and saying, hey, this is what you're doing wrong, he says, let me talk about what you need to be doing right. Because the key word of Philemon is fellowship. By the end of this whole thing, we're going to see he's encouraging there to be fellowship. And at the end of the day, he's going to let Philemon deal, come to the conclusion that you can't have fellowship with someone who's your slave, so now instead you should view him as your brother. And Paul earnestly believed that in our culture, if I could deal with the heart and give it a couple of generations, some of those things are going to start to disappear. So Paul felt like with his silence and trying to reach the heart, his silence was leading towards greater changes. But number two, and I don't want us to forget this, number two is that Paul also taught equality. 
In other places, in fact, I want to look at one more passage this morning before we move on. In other places, Paul teaches, hey, this isn't right how we view things. We have to fix this. And often what Paul said, because he's mirroring the words of Jesus, what he said today, it doesn't seem like it's that controversial. But in his day, and in Jesus' day, just prior to him, everything he was saying was so groundbreaking, earth-shattering, that they're saying, man, this is way different than anything culture has started to believe. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, it says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. And he says, there is now, watch this, verse 28 is so key. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul is sitting here dealing with some of the controversies of his day. And he's saying, hey, listen to me for a second. Church, listen, we're looking at all of these and we're saying one is better than the other and that's not the case. Jesus came to break all of that up. And he said, because of that, there's no more Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. One doesn't have a priority over the other. And this was groundbreaking for them. But Paul is only trumpeting the words of Jesus 30 years earlier. See, Jesus has a story that he tells that we came to know as a parable of the Good Samaritan. But the parable of the Good Samaritan taught us a whole new definition of who is your neighbor. See, prior to that, people were culturally divided. They were racially divided. They were basically came down to you're Jewish or you're Gentile. And if you're one, you didn't care for the other. And Jesus tells a story where man's beaten up by criminals. And the hero of the story, which he's telling to a primarily Jewish audience, the hero of the story is the Samaritan. It's not the priest, it's not the rabbi, it's the Samaritan. And he says, listen, we have to view things differently because no more is their preferential treatment to one over the other. No more is one more important than the other. And it's why if you look at first century, the first century world, everything Jesus did on teaching people what it meant to say one is not more important than the other was, was truly, truly groundbreaking. See, prior to Jesus, if, if you were a woman living in that world, you weren't giving much credit or much authority at all. You weren't allowed to lead. You weren't allowed to teach. You weren't allowed to do any of those things. And yet Jesus starts to call upon women to say, I want you to step up and to be a leader. I want to give you, to show you that you have dignity, that you have value, that you have worth. And everything that we see about culture has changed. Literally, you study the history of it, and you see how much Jesus changed the culture on that topic. In fact, sometimes, I don't even know if we ever thought about this. But who are the people who show up at the empty tomb? The women. Now, prior to Jesus, if a woman came and gave a report and said, hey, I saw it, heard this, the men might say, I can't believe you because your opinion doesn't have value. But Jesus, I want to show you how important women are. I want to show you the dignity that they have, that they have worth. And it's their report that is first reported that shows he is no longer there. He is risen. And so Jesus had laid the foundation to say, we can no longer treat one person as more important than the other. We can't treat a person because of, of, of their gender as more important than the other. We can't treat them because of their race as more important than the other. And he even says, what Paul writes is we can't treat a person, whether slave nor free, it no longer matters because of what Christ has done. Literally, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
that there's no more difference between, we, we separate ourselves enough and say, so well, I'm more important because of this, and I'm more important because of this. And Paul says, none of us are more significant than the other person. At the end of the day, all that matters is what Paul is writing about. Because of faith in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized in Christ Jesus have put on Christ, because of that, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Because of that, there's neither slave nor free. Because of that, there's no longer male nor female. And so Paul comes, and he's really, really silent on the topic when it comes to Philemon. Now, he's not silent entirely. And so what he's done, he's done two things. He says, first of all, I want to let you know I have a track record of teaching that this is wrong, that there's no longer preferential treatment. The good news is, and to be fair about this, by the time Paul's addressing the letter to, to Philemon, culture had already started to change. Slaves in his day were given a bunch of freedom. In fact, often what was happening in the early church because it was this, this groundbreaking movement, a lot of times the slaves would come to church where the owners would choose not to. But they had the freedom to be able to do that. And this Christian faith was so appealing because the people were living under that oppressive mindset. They're saying, wait a minute, this is different. So Paul says, even though in this one instance I choose not to, to speak on the topic because I'm trying to reach out to a friend and show him where his heart is failing, I have a track record of doing that just that very same thing. I have a track record of showing this is wrong. The ground's leveled for the cross. We're all the same. We all have the same dignity and value and worth. And so because of that, I can now speak to my friend saying, I've given clarity on this topic already. But let me speak to you a second about your heart. And he talks about his heart. And eventually by the very end of the letter, which we're going to read in detail over the next couple of weeks, he says, I want you to count this kid not as a slave but as a brother. And that's going to be the big ask. Now, it's going to take us a while to get there. But that's going to be the big ask. And literally, most experts look back <clears throat> and say, number one, the way that Paul deals with this is probably the most appropriate way to deal with it. The true change is going to happen in people's hearts first. We can't keep affecting behavior without affecting the heart. But if we affect the heart, all the behavior can start to be dealt with. But also just from a historical perspective, that Paul's letter to Philemon changed the way the church approaches topic but also probably started to affect culture some as well. Now, we're dealing with a, a heavy topic this morning. We're getting ready to wrap this thing up. But I just, I just want to share this as we kind of wrap up because one of the things we want to be sure is that we believe fully, just like Jesus showed up in people's lives 2,000 years ago and was interested in changing their heart before he changed their behaviors, we believe the same thing is true today. In fact, one of the things that we're going to say often from, from here is this idea that Jesus makes our life better and he makes us better at life. We exist as a church to help people take next steps in experiencing Jesus in that way. So even through this series, we're going to deal with some heavy topics. We want to make sure at the end that, man, we give a chance for people to say, yeah, that's, that's what I want my life to be about. And so in just a second, we're going to pray, and we're going to finish with a song, some other stuff that we're doing. But as we do that, I just want to challenge you, man, if you're in a spot in life right now where you're saying, man, I've been fighting Jesus on this. He doesn't have my heart. I'm telling you, Jesus will make your life better and he'll make you better at life. And so if you're in a spot saying, man, I've never made a decision to follow Christ, and today I want to make sure that I do that. I don't want to leave here without knowing for sure that I have salvation that's found only in him. I want to encourage you to do that. I'll be hanging out if you want to come talk to me or fill out a connection card. Maybe you made that decision recently and you want to get baptized. You've never been uh, publicly baptized. We're doing baptism in two weeks. 
We'd love for you to join us in that because we genuinely believe that we want to help people take those next steps in following Jesus. If we can help out in any way in doing that, please let us know. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that sometimes you bring very fragile, very delicate situations into our lives to reveal a deeper need that we have. And God, this series is going to be one of those bigger topics for us. Uh, A controversy in Paul's day, a controversy today. And and we have to navigate. Fortunately, we have 2,000 years of building on the church's shoulders before us and figuring out how to deal with all of this. And so, God, I pray that you give us clarity. I pray that you give us understanding. And, God, I pray that, that through all this we see that the biggest issue is the heart issue. That if people have right beliefs, it's going to result in right actions and not vice versa. God, teach us that right now. I pray for people that need to make decisions. I pray that pe- for people that need to respond in some sort of way. God, your invitation is always open for them to respond. And so, God, I pray that, you just, that your spirit would speak truth through our lives. Change us. Make us who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.